Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Good afternoon, Brooklyn. You're listening to Let's Eat In on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway, as usual, and I'm very proud to have today Tracy McMillan on the show. Hi. Hey, Kathy. How's it going? Thanks so much for coming. I'm excited to be here. The American way of eating, undercover at Walmart, Applebee's, Farm Fields, and the Dinner Table is the name of her new book. It's coming out tomorrow, published by Scribner. There's also going to be an awesome event at Housing Works Bookstore if you're around New York. Uh, it's the launch party followed by a panel, or same thing. Right, it's sort of a mix. I, I thought it would be more interesting to have a conversation than just have me stand up and read from the book. And so um, Amanda Hesser and Jim Osland. Um, so Amanda's from Food 52. Jim is from Savour. Um, Anya Sazadlo from Day of Honey. And then one of my favorite urban farmers, um, Reverend Devaney Jackson from bed Farm, who are going to sit oh, down. Oh, I love her. I had her on the show once. Oh, really? Yeah. She's great. And then um, and also um, Erica Wides, um, who actually also does a show here on yep. Heritage Radio. We're all going to get together. And, and the idea is to talk about anti-foodie foodies, which is... I can't wait for that. <laughs> so, it's a very interesting name yeah, for well, a panel. Well, we mostly wanted to sort of play with this idea of, you know, taking your food seriously yeah. sort of renders you immediately into this sort of precious and elitist category, which in my reporting for the book, I found to be absolutely not the case. So it's sort of this thing where, you know, there's this caricature of low income people as sort of just jamming fast food into their faces without a care in the world. And, and actually what I found is a lot of people really do care about their food and their meals. And we wouldn't think of them as foodies, but they're just as invested in sort of, you know, the quality of their meals and their health. So I wanted to play with that. And I, I think that panel will be a really fun way to do it. Yeah. And after checking out your book, um, it sounds like you were once an anti-foodie. Yeah, (laughs) it's true. It's true. So I I grew up um, sort of white working class in Michigan. It depends on where you draw the line, like it's sort of the upper edge of the working class or the lower edge of the middle. Um, You know, and in my family growing up, you know, salad other than iceberg lettuce was something that fancy people did. Um, you know, casseroles were real home cooking, and and they actually are still right. Like I love casseroles, um, but you there can get the, a fancy mac and cheese now. <laughs> I know, very. It's fancy. all coming first full circle. <laughs> so you know, I really wanted to play with like this idea that you know, I grew up thinking like any kind of healthier fresh food was something that was only for snobs, um, and and I think that's you know partly like this circular thing that happens that when you're in a community where that's what's available, that is your culture and that becomes comfort. And and that's part of, I mean, a lot of it tastes good, like it's fine, but that shouldn't exclude like people from eating healthy food. Right. And so how do you have that conversation? It's interesting because it seems like you, you really helped answer that and uh, kind of bring that to full light in your book. If I may be the boring reader of your book right now. It brings me to a passage um, just in the uh, introduction where you say, like Ole Miss, the idea that only the affluent and educated care about their meals has spread not because it is true, but but because parts of it are. Healthier food is more expensive. So is the fact that it can be hard to find in poor neighborhoods. And yet it requires an impossible leap of logic to conclude from these facts that that only the rich care about their meals. And at the end of, by the end of the introduction, you had kind of found a lot of antithesis to, uh, 
antitheses to, um, <laughs> you know, you know, it's not just the rich who care about their food, basically. Yeah, well, it's been really interesting. The more that I've sort of worked on the book and, and been talking about it, the more that I, I've really come to sort of think that, you know, it's actually not healthy food that's elitist. It's fast food, because I, I think that, you know, only somebody who had never talked to a poor or working class person would think that poor and working class people only want to eat crappy food. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's fast food that's elitist or? Well, the uh. like this idea that, I mean, obviously fast food culturally is not elitist, mm-hmm. but that the idea that the only kind of authentic working class food experience is fast food, I think that's something only an elite would come up with. Ah, yes. I see. So it's all about the perspective too. Um, so let, let me just uh, back up and explain or help uh, elucidate this wonderful book, um, I just I'm I think it's come at such a great time. I'm so inspired by it. And um, you know, I have this like little quote on my blog from Thoreau's Walden, where he says, no one can be an impartial or wise observer of human society, but from the vantage point of what we should call voluntary poverty. <laughs> and Tracy really, really um, kind of like uh, went all out on that by going and working in these, you know, uh, minimum wage jobs first at farms in america and then at retail stores walmart for example then as a server at applebee's and it's actually in the kitchen you're in this kitchen sorry 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 yeah and that you know at the end you know you 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 just cook for yourself too for a bit which is exciting for me (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean we tried to you know come up with a good balance of how much i was going to talk about my own experience and my own cooking because really the subject of the book shouldn't just be me right it's the people um that i was meeting the people that you know actually do these jobs for a living day in and day out year round um you know one of the the really interesting things has been that you know as the first reviews have been coming out there seems to be this assumption that because i'm a white woman who went to college and you know i recently got a very nice fancy title at brandeis that does not come with any money but it you know it helps me for networking and things like that that I must be like people are starting to refer to me as like a muffy right like somebody who went to a really elite college and I you know I'm just sneering down my nose at um you know regular people and the sort of funny thing know what that means muffy yeah I mean whatever (laughs) but I mean I think what's sort of interesting about it is that you know in my normal quote-unquote real life like I don't actually make more money than I would have if I was working at Applebee's. You know, I I almost never go out to eat because I can't afford anything that's actually, you know, a lot better than what I can make at home for myself quickly and cheaply. Um, you know, I struggle with my bills like everybody else. And really, the only reason I live in New York is because I got into a stabilized apartment. So my, my rent is reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been really interesting to sort of have these conversations with people. And the default assumption is always that, you know, I'm some rich girl, like that's yeah. just sort of slumming through <laughs> these jobs. And, you know, and it's obviously one thing when it's like Internet trolls. But when you're <laughs> when there are re- like reviewers who are paid to read the book and like that's their assumption. Right. It, it's a really interesting conversation to start to have. Well, whatever. Um, you had the guts to explore this firsthand, you know, person take personal sacrifices and in, tell the stories of the people that you met, which is, you know, the best, you know, some of the best parts of the book to me, oh, which were really good, enlightening. Good. And I know that you had great um, connections and learned a lot through other people. Um, and that's an exciting part of the journey. Uh, we were talking a while ago when we met at the 
book festival, Brooklyn mm-hmm. Book Festival, about um, a, a book by Barbara Einreich called Nickel right. and Dimed. Right. So obviously, um, anyone who reads my book will see that I'm a, a big Erin Reich fan. Um, I think she did a really beautiful job in Nickel and Dimed, um, writing about what it's like to, um, you know, work in the service sector in the U.S. and try and get by on those wages. And you know, her book was pegged around the advent of welfare reform, where all of a sudden we tied social assistance to being engaged in the workforce, which has a, you know, it's been this very interesting journey in terms of how American society works, because now, you know, it seems to be that people have come upon the realization that you could work and shockingly still be poor in the U.S., which I think has been true for a lot of people for a long time. Um, But I wanted to really dig into what that means uh, when people are trying to eat, right? Because that's a very basic human need. And so, you know, what happens to your interest in cooking or your interest in nutrition when you're juggling all of those different stresses? And obviously, I'm not going to experience it the same way um, someone who's going to be doing that for the long term is going to. But there's, you know, I did find that the way I thought about food changed a lot over the course of doing the yeah. book. And I thought that was really informative for me. Yeah, definitely. So you also, okay, so you're an anti-foodie at first, non-fancy <laughs> right. foodie, I was a I very say. grouchy, like class warfare-ish. And you were writing uh, invis- investigative journalism on other topics, not food. Right, mostly poverty. How did it, you know, strike you to write this whole book and take up a year of your life to research for it, <laughs> it on a- food? <laughs> right, well, I mean, it was interesting. I had um, been working as a poverty and welfare reporter in New York City, so actually my, my job was to go and hang out with, you know, people on welfare fair or um, making very little money and things like that. And um, I got an assignment from my editor at City Limits Magazine to go and cover a sustainable food cooking class. And this was about eight years ago now. So it wasn't a big deal yet to sort of talk about these things. And when she gave me the assignment, I was sort of like, oh, this is great. This will be a real interesting. Good luck, hippie. You know, the, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, um, the guy taught by the Brian Terry was taught by Brian Love Terry, him. right. Who's lovely, you know, and he's this very interesting African-American like man and chef and, and sort of advocate and, and does like really wonderful work. But I wasn't sold on it, right? Because I grew up being like, I'm like, yeah, whatever, hippie. Yeah, oh, those kids will love those vegetables. <laughs> but I'll go. My editor told me. Um, and I ended up hanging out and following the class for about six, eight months. And, you know, shockingly, education worked. Wow. And, you know, the kids, and I, I say shockingly, sarcastically, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Like the kids in the class not only, you know, sort of could parrot back the lessons, but they could talk about it in sort of their own slang and their own terms of speech. And I thought that meant, you know, that's actually kind of working. And the more I spent time talking with them about how food worked in their neighborhoods, the more everyone said, like, yeah, this is all great. I'd love to eat more organic food. I'd love to eat more fruits and vegetables. I like cooking. It's not really easy to do that in my neighborhood. Mm. Um, you know, and so for them, it was a question of access and education and things like that. And so I, we ended up, when we ran the piece on the cooking class, I actually um, went ahead and crunched the numbers to do the first analysis of food access in the city. So this wasn't talked about as a problem um, beforehand. So we had to, you know, there's private industry data on where, how many supermarkets there are and things like that. Um, but we sort of did that independently at city limits and came up with like a zip code by zip code guide to food access in the city to sort of start that conversation. Um, and so two things happened. One, it was actually really useful when communities started using that data to advocate for farmers markets in their neighborhoods. Um, and since then the city's gone on to, um, copy the same metric that I had developed, um, and that's now used in, in policy here, which is really exciting. 
And two, I realized that I could write about the sorts of things that I was interested in, which is experience of working life in America through food. Mm -hmm. And people would talk to me and be excited about it because the... (laughs) <laughs> There's not a lot I'm not of... excited about talking about food at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, you should try trying to talk to people about welfare at parties. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, I, you know, I sort of say to friends, I'm like, yeah, nobody ever wanted to talk about welfare at parties. But, you know, start talking about supermarkets and, and people can immediately relate to what that means, right? Yeah, true. There's not that much narrative in the U.S., or at least there hasn't been. Like, I think in the last year, there's been more of a narrative around class difference in the U.S. But, the, you know, to get people to talk about poverty, you usually have to get them to be like right there's class inequality in america not everybody is middle class and, and that's sort of a big like leap but yeah. it's really easy when you talk about supermarkets and you say well you know people in some neighborhoods don't actually have good supermarkets so what do you think that means for their diet and everyone gets it right away mm-hmm. um, and then everybody you can, eats yeah, everybody eats so you can sit down and have a really interesting conversation about you know, what life is like in working in America without having to sort of turn someone's like idea of America on its head, Yeah, which I found to be much more useful. <laughs> so you do a lot of exploring about class issues through the lens of food in this book. And from the very beginning, um, there's an encounter with uh, the family of uh, uh, farmers who are um, from Mexico, I believe, and you spoke fluent Spanish to them. And they're like, what? Why would you want to work here? (laughs) Well, I wouldn't say fluent, but, you know, I I have some very basic command of the language. It was much better, by the way, uh, three years ago. Um, But, you know, very initially, I, um, through, like, a network of people, I got to stay in a trailer in, like, a trailer park full, mostly of Mexican farm workers, and um, the family whose trailer it was were gone. They had gone back to Mexico for a few weeks. And, you know, I, my sort of advisors had been like, okay, so what you should do to find work is just get up, go out the door, and just start asking for work. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, for me as somebody who usually operates in a white-collar professional environment is a little weird. It's sort of like going up to the Condé Nast building and trying to flag down editors as they come out the front door, <laughs> which, you know, doesn't really happen I said okay I'll, I'll go and do that I walked out the front door and I some people next door and I was like hola como esta uh, you know I'm looking for work and you know they were really open to that they laughed initially yeah, right? yeah. and then you know they sort of said really I was like yep I, I want to do field work do you know of any and and luckily um the woman who I call Pilar in the book um she was a maradoma so she was a foreign woman um, and she had had a lot of struggles. So she had had, um, she was a single mom. She'd left her husband because he had been violent with her. Um, and she had two kids. And, you know, she'd been in the country for about 13 years. And so I, you know, she really sort of took me under her wing because my the story that I shared, and it's certainly been true at different parts of my life, was that, you know, I have a lot of family problems. I don't want to talk about yeah. it. I just want to work really hard and not think. And if I can earn minimum wage in the field, that's fine. Um, and so we really sort of shared that. And was that sort of true to an extent or was that kind of like, absolutely. don't talk to me or like, <laughs> I mean, it, for me, that's definitely yeah. been true. Like my childhood was actually like a fairly difficult one. Um, my family, my dad sold lawnmowers. My mom had multiple sclerosis and then she got a head injury. Oh, so dear. she was really yeah. ill at home when I was a kid and I was the oldest of three. So I did a lot of sort of like trying to help take care of things and stuff like that. And then when, you know, and she ended up going into a home and passing when I was a teenager. So it's a very difficult environment and, and certainly create a lot of stress and strain in my family. And so, you know, 
and those are the sorts of things that you talk about with people when you're talking about what's stressful in your life. So, I mean, we were able to sort of have these very honest conversations about our lives. Um, and that really, I think, opened up Pilar to, to talking with me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and broke I, the class divides, maybe. And, you I know, think so, a bit. I mean, it was interesting. The, um, the, one of the grown sons of the family I was staying with came back while I was, I was staying there. And he was talking to Pilar. And I sort of asked him, I said, does, does she know that I'm a journalist? Like, are you sure she doesn't know? He's like, no, she just thinks you're really, really broke and that you must need some work. Yeah. And so she's willing to give you some. Now, how hard was it to find jobs like these minimum wage jobs at the Walmart and Applebee's? And, you know, it sounded like this was, uh, you know, kind of difficult to run around and get the farm work. Um, and these are, you know, Walmart is the largest employer in the country. Right. How... How did it work trying to so get So farm jobs? work, they were all sort of a little bit different. Farm work was the most difficult for me probably because I'm a very unusual person for that. I didn't have an easy network to access into it because yeah. there's not a formal application process for the most part. <laughs> so that was really tricky. And I write about that in the book and sort of how haphazard and potentially dangerous it is as a, <laughs> as a woman like looking to get help finding yeah. work and how vulnerable you are. Um, for Walmart, you know, I'm from Michigan, which is where I was working at Walmart. So, I mean... All I have to do is wear normal, like Midwestern okay. clothing, and like, I blend. Boom. You know, I look exactly like everybody else that's applying for work there. And it's also the economy is very difficult there, so having a college degree doesn't really mean that you're not going to end up working at Walmart. Yeah, in, in yeah, Michigan. that's what I imagine. So I mean, it was competitive. Like when I got hired at the second Walmart, I overheard a personnel director talking and saying that she had something like 360 resumes wow. um, that she was going through. Um, so I've, I felt very lucky to get that position. Yeah. And Applebee's was just the luck of the draw. Um, I, you know, I had applied to everyone that was accepting applications and would take one from me. And, you know, I just lucked out that, you know, I hit it off with the manager who interviewed me um, and he brought me into work. <laughs> Little did they know. Now, they're in this book. He was a great manager. I really enjoyed him. <laughs> All right. I can't wait to stop talking. I mean, just keep talking. But we have a little musical break that you picked out. What's the song? Um, we're going to listen to Come Back to Brooklyn, which is a country hip hop song from Gangsta Grass. All right. We'll be right back with Tracy McMillan. The following program has been brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery. Kane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.kane5.com. I 
All right, we're back with Let's Eat In with Tracy McMillan, author of The American Way of Eating. Hi, Kathy. All right. Um, so this book, it's really long, actually. I can finish <laughs> it all. But, if, but not if I may. in an intimidating way, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's both fun and very, very, very packed with <laughs> information. It's just so illuminating. And, um, but, you know, going back to the fun parts, one of the things that I loved reading about was how very early into your farm, uh, experience, um, you were making this, uh, salsa or tomato salsa using this, um, Dominican, I believe it was Guatemalan, actually. Guatemalan recipe that wasn't, I I love how you described the recipe didn't exist. It was just the way she'd been making it forever. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, to work on my Spanish before I went into the fields, I went and spent um, about five weeks in Guatemala at um, a um, Proyecto Linguistico de Quetzaltenango. It's a a great um, sort of little language school Mm -hmm. um, in the second largest city of Guatemala. And when you're um, doing that, um, those programs, you do homestays. And so I was living with a family and, you know, you eat what they make. And we ate a lot of, you know, eggs and rice and beans. And she would make this wonderful salsa verde that just had this wonderfully complex flavor that I I was like, this is way better than anything I've had in the States. Right. So I kept being like, you know, you have to tell me what the recipe is. And she was looking at me like I was crazy. And I would be <laughs> like, no, I'm going to write this down. Like, tell me what's in it. And, um, you know, so we sort of cribbed together this haphazard recipe that I, I brought back. And the, the main secret ingredient is that you put thyme in it. Oh. Like a fresh sprig of thyme, which gives it sort of like a very nice depth of flavor, along with, you know, you know, jalapenos, tomatillos, like onion, garlic, cumin. That sounds great. And like a little bit of salt and playing with the vinegar, like playing with a little bit of the vinegar and salt balance, like really a helps. A little oregano, but, fresh oregano? Yeah, some, fr- some oregano okay. is good in that. I think that's in there. Um, good. So it sort of was this thing where I was, you know, in a community where in those sorts of ingredients were really available and were fairly cheap. Yes. And so I had sort of bought that because it's a really easy way to dress up rice and beans. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was also cooking like this huge pile of green beans that a neighbor had brought over and I was trying to figure out like what to do with them. And you talk <laughs> about how um, on some of your grocery sh- shopping trips when you're living out in California, the Central Valley where you're farming, um, you'd buy a whole sack of, it sounds like, lemons and all these fruits and it would be like ten dollars for the whole total and other stuff I, I can't remember but a huge cache of stuff for only ten dollars whereas back in new york you described you know going to the bodega and finding roaches on the shelves and then having to spend a whole <laughs> right, lot to be fair the roaches on the shelves were in like 1995 or 96 i think in my first apartment down at sunset park right um and not that you can't still find crappy grocery stores like that's certainly yeah. all over um but and- you're kind of like resigned to settling with whatever they had at whatever prices and right well you know i think that particularly when you're working a lot and don't have a lot of control over your work hours and if you're really exhausted you just sort of naturally end up getting the food that's most convenient for you and i I don't think that's a moral judgment on anybody i think it's just what happens in practical terms for people who are working right you know as a writer i'm really lucky in that you know i work an incredible amount and i make very little money but all of my time is my own Right. Mm-hmm. And so I can I can decide that, you know, I it's important to me to like go to this particular store or to join the food co-op and all of that. And I, and it's really easy for me to do that because I'm a single person and mm-hmm. I have a flexible schedule. I can sort of do whatever the heck I want. Um, someone raised 
in a family, you know, I think has a lot more demands on their time uh, than I do. And the easiest thing is to just go to what's convenient. So sort of the thing that I started engaging with in doing the book was, you know, what if instead of, you know, expecting people to turn over all of their free time to finding good food, we just made it easy for everyone to get good food, right? Mm-hmm. And and what would it take to do that? And would that really matter? Um, you know, and it, it's interesting. I pulled in some um, primatological research on sort of humans and cooking. And, and you sort of see this like throughout evolution that, you know, one of the things that really defines species is, you know, obviously their food sources. And one of the things that defines human evolution was reducing the amount of time dedicated to foraging and to actually eating. Because when you're eating raw food, it's something like primates that are close to us spend four or five more hours a day just Uh. chewing, (laughs) right? Because cooking (laughs) makes things a lot easier to eat, right? And so I sort of was like, oh, well, like humans have always been trying to economize like on the time and energy we spend like getting our food because that frees us up for all this other stuff that we do and creating culture and all of that and you know what you know I I don't know that we should really chastise people you know for continuing that right very interesting primor a primatologist primatology it's this um (laughs) book called catching fire how cooking made us human um that's really really fascinating i i was really smitten with it oh my gosh i'm gonna have to run through your uh sources here bibliography and (laughs) it's a significant bibliography awesome yeah um you know um people are always saying it's people's choice your buying power that can uh you know turn around your diet or um change the food system maybe but you um at one of the stats that came um in a handout with your book um (laughs) explains that you know we're not getting something like 80 some percent of americans are not getting their daily recommended intake of fruits and vegetables right and it would take a doubling of our national production of fruits and vegetables to meet that demand right like right now the american food supply contains about half the fruits and vegetables that it would take for americans to meet the recommended daily allowances right right so we clearly haven't made a priority in terms of our agriculture um to sort of foster a healthy diet And so I think, right, there's a couple ways to deal with that. Obviously, people talk about reforming agricultural subsidies and subsidizing smaller production, um, which I I think has, you know, an important role to play. Um, I'm also interested in the idea of sort of subsidizing demand because I think that creates a more sustainable long-term fix. Because when you subsidize production, you create all these perverse incentives to overproduce or underproduce, right, which is sort of the problem that we have with corn and soy right now. Um, If you're subsidizing demand and making it possible and easy for people to buy more fruits and vegetables, then you're creating a marketplace and you can let the market do what it does well, which is sort of allocate resources in a certain direction to meet demand. Um, So, you know, I base this on um, there are a number of programs rising up around the country um, through Wholesome Wave and Double Up Food Bucks. Uh, which is the Fair Food Network in Michigan, um, where they're giving matching funds to food stamp clients to buy fresh fruits and vegetables. And they're a huge success. People use them all like use them and then, you know, go ahead and spend some of their own money at market. So Mm -hmm. I think, again, this is sort of evidence that, you know, low income people understand and appreciate good food. The problem is access, not just in terms of whether or not there's a store, but time and money. Right. Going back to, we all want to eat well if we yeah. if we make it easier in the form of cheaper and so forth, right? Accessible. Um, so, what was the least favorite uh, episode <laughs> of your journey here? Um, 
I think the thing I disliked the most actually was working the night shift at Walmart. Yeah. Um, and I was I was talking to someone yesterday. That sounds like a horror movie about to happen. <laughs> it just it just wasn't fun. It was really boring. It's really isolated. Stocking shelves at night. You're in an aisle all by yourself. Humongous so aisles too. Very yeah. long aisles. <laughs> um, and then I I think part of it too is that um, you know Walmart it was the sort of work and living environment that's closest to what I actually grew up in, mm-hmm. and so. You know, it's very interesting to go for me as somebody who's not a Mexican immigrant to go and live in that community, because even if I don't like the work, it's just really interesting and new. Right. And I'm a really curious person. So I found that really Great. fascinating. And the same thing with the restaurant kitchen, which I hadn't worked in for probably 10 or 12 years. Really fascinating, really fun, really fast paced. Walmart is really what would have happened to me if I hadn't like had the opportunity to go on to college. So if I hadn't gotten my scholarship to NYU, and I hadn't managed to get myself together enough to go off to school, right? Working at Walmart for 10 or 12 years could very easily have happened to be my life. And so there's something about that that I think was a lot more unsettling. And certainly seeing um, that the people I was working with had worked there, not you know just for a couple of years, but like seven, 10, 15 years. Like these are people um, who don't have that much education. And in prior generations, probably, you know, in an ideal world would have gone to work in factories with union jobs. And what they've got now is Walmart. Or perhaps a farm. Right, or yeah. a farm, going further back. Well, um, we just only have a few minutes left, although I feel like there's so much more to talk <laughs> about. Please do check out The American Way of Eating um, out tomorrow. It's it's a great read, great um, book panel uh, event tomorrow night at Housing Works Bookstore. Um, my favorite question, though, of the day, Tracy, what is your ultimate date meal? My ultimate date meal, I would say, you know, I actually, a nice cut of meat, um, like steak is really nice. I never get to eat anything like Mm -hmm. that. Oh, it doesn't matter. Just nicely cooked, like whatever it is. Um, A good salad. Actually, you know, I'm really into Mexican food lately. So like if somebody made me like some really good carne asada tacos and like a nice like slaw or like a jicama slaw or something like that, that would be great. I would be into that. But at this point, really, anything somebody else will cook for me, I'm pretty excited about. Yeah, so. sounds like you're a pretty busy lady. Lately, lately yeah. I've, it's devolved into a lot of oatmeal and crackers. <laughs> Gosh. Well, congratulations. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much for putting yourself out there for our benefit and our learning. Thank you really so much appreciate for having it. me. All right, check out her website, tracymcmillan.com. That's me. And uh, that's about all the time. So we'll see you next week. Thanks to everyone at Heritage. I'm Kathy Irway. We're signing out. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.